Welcome to Record Crimes. In each episode, we'll be getting into anything from copyright legal battles, crimes committed by people in the music industry, and and everything everything in between. People in the music industry? Doing illegal things? Really? Hi, y'all. You've made it to the second episode, which means our first episode wasn't too shabby. Is this only recording me or you? <laughs> Pause it immediately. Okay, wait, I just did it. There we go. Okay, we literally just spent like 20 minutes talking, and I was not being recorded at all, and I honestly find that kind of a bit of a personal attack. Um, but honestly, we were blabbering a lot, so let's just go over the highlights. We were talking about, um, internet memes, Adam Levine, how I don't really care about him anymore, and, um, Now we have content because of that. My name is Liz, um, I'm a singer, songwriter, producer from upstate New York, and, uh... Now you're in LA. Clarison's bestie. Yes, (laughs) and I'm the bestie, Clarice, um, I am a composer multimedia score for like film and television and other stuff a producer and you know among other things i guess kind of have to be a little bit of everything now i yeah. feel the especially list goes being on and on. a lady a lady a madam a madam um, yes this is true i am incredibly caffeinated and i'm a little worried about um trying to read and talk at the same time I think we can make it work. Yeah, I think We've been so doing too. it already. Yeah, we just be talking, so. Do you want to go first? Yeah, I'll go first. Are okay. we just going to jump right in? I feel like we can. Yay, slay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, so I'm going to be talking about payola today. We kind of touched on it last episode, like what it was. We just kind of briefly mentioned it, I think, in your story. I don't think I... Yeah, well, what I love about this episode is that you're talking about something that was mentioned in my story, Mm -hmm. and I'm talking about something that was mentioned in your story. Kind of coincidentally, we were like, we... We we were literally just texting, and I was like, what are you guys... What are you doing, like, next week? And she was like, oh, like, you mentioned this, and I was like, oh, shit. We're... We spend a lot of time together. (laughs) The wavelengths. The wavelengths. The telepathic wavelengths. We share one brain cell. (laughs) One happy little brain cell. One little happy guy. We just pass back and forth. She usually has it, not me. Well, you got it now, so. I hope so. (laughs) I'm passing it to you. Thank God. All right, my sources for today, I have um, actually more. I have a bunch. I actually did research this time. My sources, I used um, the. Paola Wikipedia page, a 2015 article by Lydia Hutchinson, 2018 live.com article by Heather McDonald, two Rolling Stone articles from 2021 and 2022. One was written by the Artists' Rights Alliance and the other was um, Elias Leet, a 2021 article from the Journey of the Business and Technology Law by Christine Smith Burton. So, Paola. The term payola is the combination of pay 
and Ola, um, which is honestly, I think just they, the Ola is just like a really common suffix. Like in the 20th century, there's like Pianola, Amberola, Crayola, like Motorola. Yeah. Like I feel insane. I feel like everyone was just like around like this time, like people were just like putting Ola on everything. Like, I, I, I could not find a re- another reason why that was called, like, Paola. <laughs> hey and Ola. I felt so stupid in that moment. I was like, yes, yeah. yes, that is that word split yeah. up. Yeah. Okay. So, it doesn't really have, like, any more significance than that. So what Paola is, it's the practice of paying a commercial radio station to play a song without the station disclosing the payment. So obviously that's illegal. The Federal Communications Commission, or the FCC, treats payola as a violation of the sponsorship identification rules, and that basically just requires any broadcast of any sort of paid material to include, like, they paid us to, like, people on TikTok or Instagram have to say, like, hashtag ad or something like that. Right. And I was also about to say for, like, government officials Mm -hmm. running campaigns paid by like whoever yeah yeah you gotta include your sponsors and your donors you can't i'm gonna be talking mostly about radio stations Mm -hmm. just for now and then i'll kind of go into more like modern day like where we see payola so payola in its prime it was used by like record labels they would kind of reach out to radio stations and purchase ads required bands like to play station sponsored concerts Or they would do like a meet the band kind of contest kind of thing. In exchange for that, the radio station would like put their songs on a playlist. So the pros and the cons of payola. (laughs) Honestly, there aren't really a ton of pros to payola unless you're like the artist whose career gets boosted or the label that sees like the increased sales. Right, because it it's just publicity. Well. <laughs> yeah, it, it's Radio just, is publicity. Yeah, exposure is like 99% of the battle of like being in the music industry, even nowadays. This so is true. Payola can pay off for like some of these people, but honestly, I don't know, it doesn't work that well, in my opinion. Some cons. Obviously, this is kind of like a privilege to have, like be under a label or a big label that has the money to pay like the DJs and stuff off. So a lot of the labels like also are against using this practice even in the beginning when it wasn't really illegal yeah it was kind of more of like a principle thing they were like no we want it to be like organic. we have morals yeah yeah so artists whose albums come out at the same time as another artist whose label is engaging in payola may see like very small sales due to lack of exposure because like the people who are getting airtime because they're getting they're paying the djs like are just taking up all the spots you know it's like really damaging to independent artists and small labels absolutely well and it's also it's kind of interesting to think about like looking back on like the music of the time like what Mm -hmm. was popular on radio yeah and you wonder if like there was someone out there who honestly could have been better i'm sure there was yeah than any of you know the popular people but just because they had the money yeah they became the sound of the time. the fucking case where it's just like the people that have the money, the most money. People say that it like hurts the integrity of the music business. Absolutely. Which I do agree with, but also I, as like a very critical girl myself, I would say the integrity of the music business is already kind of like, um, on the rocks. Lacking. Lacking. 
Yeah, there's just a lot of people. It's obviously that some of them are going to be bad, you know? So, like, it put, it also pushed up the costs of, like, music. Um, since labels were involved in payola and needed the money in their budget to pay the DJs. It also hurts for radio stations that don't want to take the bribes, you know? Like Absolutely. I'm sure there was a lot of even bigger radio stations that were like, we're not doing that. Like, this isn't, that's not us, you know? I know. Um, I'm going to kind of go into the little history of payola. Prior to the 1930s, 30s ish there was not really a lot of scrutiny behind the reasoning of a song's popularity like no one kind of really looked into like why is that song popular and that song's not right the emergence of hit radio became a threat to the wages of publishers revenue streams so um by the 1940s about three quarters of the records produced in the u.s went into jukeboxes oh yeah (laughs) which i found interesting i didn't know that Three quarters. Yeah. 75% of all the records were in a, like jukeboxes. Yeah, the That's records crazy. produced. Yeah. A lot of people attempted to link like all payola to rock and roll. Like, mm. so it was like around the time when rock and roll was becoming a big thing. Sex, and obviously, drugs, rock and roll, and payola. Yeah. Well, it's, this was like rock when rock and roll was like oldies rock and roll. Like Elvis. Yeah. I don't want to say Elvis because like he just stole all of his songs. But yes. Um, if you don't know, rock and roll was created by black people, and um, yes. then obviously the white people had to come in and steal it. But here we are. Well, <laughs> Link I back any this, genre to. Well, like, I think this clearly helps to support this whole payola thing. It's like you know you have a group of people yeah. that create the roots right. of a genre, but why does no one know them? Yeah, why exactly. is that not popular versus? what we know as popular well there's also like there's also people that say that um like the practice of payola created more diversity in the music industry because they were like djs were like less inclined to indulge their own personal bias or whatever that's true i guess it would also be you know i guess that's like a case by case kind of thing because i was about to say some record companies had quite a bit of bias yeah of course finding their artists so if you were lucky enough to get past you know the racial discrimination in your right very wealthy record studio yeah. then yeah you would get promoted but mm-hmm. so many boundaries yeah so i guess yeah. kept. <laughs> are we shocked no the first u.s congressional payola investigations happened in 1959 okay so this was like a little bit after people were like doing this a lot (laughs) like Mm -hmm. before it was just like was not illegal and it wasn't really talked about like it was just kind of like if you know you know kind of thing right like no one really investigated into the legality yeah Yeah. it was carried out by the house subcommittee on the legislative oversight into payola it was prompted by a parallel investigation in the u.s senate honestly didn't look too much into that because i don't care Um, like there was (laughs) a investigation going on in the senate with like payola for like politics i think so yeah at least like from what i like skimmed over they just didn't feel like relevant so there was kind of one there was a kind of like a handful of djs that got a lot of the blow for this like payola scandal they took the blow yeah not the companies for accepting the bribes yeah Mm-hmm. that's <laughs> i know i have feelings about that yep. <laughs> i mean yeah it's wrong but like no i agree dang dj alan freed is probably one of the most like he got hit the hardest i would say in this payola investigation alan i think he was singled out because he was kind of like an abrasive guy he smoked constantly looked like 
disheveled all the time. Like, he just wasn't, like, I don't know. <laughs> he was probably a nice man. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, he wasn't, like, clean-cut America's right, newscaster, exactly. reporter type of radio. And this is in host. the late 50s, early 60s, so kind of when, like, you kind of, the clean-cut whatever was, right, like, in. Right, So he just, like, he was, I kept seeing the word abrasive. Like, I guess he was just, like, really, like, was he abrasive in your face. or was he just not taking shit, you know? Yeah, I agree. So, like, guilty or not, he was the one who was ended up taking the fall for, like, all of this, for all Jeez. of the DJs, <laughs> which sucks. Like, <laughs> So, once the grilling started, Freed's friends and allies in broadcasting quickly turned on him. They all gave him up, really. He was fired from his... Uh, radio station WABC, he refused, quote, on principle to sign an affidavit saying he'd, that he'd never accepted payola. So he wasn't very, like, cooperative in this whole investigation just to begin with, and I think that's another reason why he was kind of, like, honed in on, because they're like, oh, this guy's, like, he looks super mega guilty. And he's not refusing exactly. either. Yeah. That's very interesting that he was, he was like, no, I did. I took their money. Like, he did, I don't know if he necessarily said that, but he just didn't want to sign, like, he didn't want to sign paperwork saying that he never did, you know? Yeah, that's very, like... I think he, he was just like, I don't want to be involved, you know? Like, why am I the one who's getting honed in on, you okay. know? so not necessarily, like, he's denying anything. He's yeah. more like, I don't want to get involved in an investigation. Well, for, like, from what it seems like, the DJs, that was, like, it was, like, a common practice. I'm sure all of his DJ buddies and shit, like, did that, too. It was kind of just, like, what they did and, like, part right. of the job. So I'm sure, like, if this guy was the kind of guy who's just, like, I don't take any shit, mm-hmm. he was just kind of, like... I am not the only one that does this. So, like, why... Do I have to sign an yeah. affidavit? No, that makes absolute sense. You yeah. know? But eventually he was charged with 26 counts of commercial bribery. Mm. He um, he got fines and suspended jail sentence. Five years after he got charged with those, he passed away, unfortunately. Oh, no. Yeah. Was and he old? I don't... I don't think he was that old. Oh, no. In this article that I read about him specifically, uh, it says, quote, he died five years later, broke and virtually forgotten, which is so upsetting. That is so upsetting. Why would you write that? (laughs) Very upsetting. (sighs) Yeah. So Dick Clark was also like a big part of this. Yeah, he was. Mm hmm. Not New Year's. Yeah, but Dick Clark, he was, quote, like a stand-up guy. Like, he, especially compared to Alan Freed, they were kind of put next to each other, like, in a lot of these articles, Mm -hmm. like, comparing to each other. Oh, Um, just, like, different sides of the spectrum? Yeah, like, Dick Clark, he was known as, like, this clean cut. Like, he had, like... He's, like, a TV personality, too. Yeah. Yeah. So, he also had a lot of ownership or interest, like, in music industry holdings. So, he kind of escaped this basically untouched. He didn't have, like, any repercussions. Of course. Yeah. If he did, he would not have a rock in New Year's. (laughs) When I was a kid, Dick Clark, I was, like, the New Year's guy. I had no idea that he, like, did anything else. (laughs) I had no idea he was wrapped up. Well, he was very old when he died, but... So old. He was in my this mom, stuff. Damn. My mom, like, probably, like, the last five or six years of him doing that show, my mom would always, we would be watching it. She'd always be like, why are they making him do this again? God. Like, <laughs> <laughs> and honestly, like, I agree. He was, like, <laughs> I he was having a tr- hard time doing yes, that shit. Yes, I also hope by the time I'm his age that I will 
also want to stay up until midnight yeah, on go New to Year's. Bed, babe. Go to bed. Are you kidding me? I can't wait till I'm in my elderly years going to bed at like 8.30. Yeah, I do that sometimes now. Yeah, I do too. I can't I got all like my crazy staying up late and like We exhausted that that in college. I did that in high school. Oh. And college. Yeah, okay. So I just got tired after four years. (laughs) Got it. That's why I got mush brain. (laughs) (laughs) That's why I have to give her some of my brain cells. Yeah. So after all this like investigation had kind of wrapped up, radio DJs were stripped of the authority to make programming decisions. And payola was like then made a misdemeanor offense. Mm, okay. So following the creation of music sharing websites in the late t- 1990s, the power of independent promoters declined and the labels returned to dealing with stations directly. Oh. So it's kind of kind of came back. Okay. The issue of payola reared its head in again when in 2005, Sony BMG, one of the largest record labels, was forced to pay out $10 million in fines after the state of New York found the company guilty of engaging in payola, which I had no idea that happened. Jeez. Yeah. 2005. Yeah, 2005, $10 million, which is probably like how much in nowadays money. <laughs> With inflation? Yeah. <laughs> $10 billion. Yeah. <laughs> the case says that like several labels within the company rewarded DJs with cash and goods for playing specifically Sony artists, but actually a majority of those charges involved plays of the latest Jessica Simpson album. <gasps> Which is so funny. Like that's the majority of that ten million dollars. <laughs> Jessica Simpson. I know. That's the last name, honestly, I thought you were going to throw out there. I know. It was, it felt, that it. felt kind of random to me. I'm not going to lie. Sony took great lengths to cover up all of these practices, including running fake promotional competitions and gave all the prizes to the DJs, <laughs> <laughs> which is kind of really funny. Like, <gasps> no. So they would yeah. host like the they radio. They're like, like fake... call in this number to get two tickets to this concert. Basically. And wouldn't it be funny if like the caller was just another dj in a booth next to them honestly that's probably what fucking happened number three you're on and then they're like oh my god i'm so excited no way and it's just your pal next door stop that's funny yeah or like the unpaid intern or something (laughs) oh man we need an unpaid intern in that time we need an unpaid (laughs) intern caller we need to to always be the caller (laughs) on our radio show that wins stuff yeah that's so funny i know (laughs) that's absurd this is like one of the largest payola scandals in our recent years there's like a few others a lot of like artists in the past like 10-15 years have been accused of using payola but no one's been like I shouldn't say no one people really haven't been like formally charged like it's not really like super talked about nowadays or people joke about it Mm -hmm. especially with streaming and all that which I will get into But in 2006, the FCC announced that it was launching an investigation into payola practices into hundreds of U.S. radio stations. And I couldn't really find, like, any of their findings on that again. They're like, we're going to do this. Yeah. Then crickets. Yeah, crickets. (laughs) (laughs) So now I'm going to kind of talk about payola nowadays. So there's kind of like a loophole. Oh, no. Yeah. And I think where a lot of this kind of more recent stuff comes from is through that loophole. So it's basically kind of like a third party, not the record label, not the artist, not the publisher. 
will be doing the paying. Playlist pushing. Yeah. Oh. So they're literally called playlist pluggers. I actually see a lot of like playlist pluggers like on TikTok nowadays. And obviously TikTok has like a huge impact on the music industry in the past like two-ish years. Yeah. I can't tell you how many like people on my For You page are like, oh, here are some songs that you need to know about. And we just have no way of knowing or really doing anything about like if people are paying those, these, people. those people specifically to put their song on in their TikToks or whatever, which I'm sh- absolutely positive is happening. Absolutely. I'd be very surprised if it wasn't. Yeah. Third-party playlist pluggers uh, are companies that an artist, manager, and or label may hire for playlist promotion. The promotion is important, obviously, as the promotional efforts may allow for an artist's compositions to gain great success from the playlist from companies like Spotify and Apple Music. In some cases, third-party services are legitimate and create like a pretty sophisticated promotional and marketing campaign to, in order to promote the song. But in other cases, <laughs> they have promised the, sa- the artists like the same types of services offered by legitimate services, but they're actually frauds. I guess I'm harping in on TikTok because of how, like, even record labels are telling artists, like, make this go viral on TikTok or whatever for us to want to work with you. Yeah. Well, and, like, the amount of TikTok stars that have record deals and tours right now. It's very interesting, like, kind of being a musician and watching TikTok and how it's changing the music industry and how so many older people in the industry are so against it. They are like, this is not the way it's supposed to be done. But they're also so money hungry that they're just like, but you also do need to go viral on TikTok. Yeah. You know? <laughs> well, it's and, so and they're weird. also, they're just very used to the way things were done. Exactly. But I guess I have to do that now because I also want money. Exactly. But in, and then you think about it, like your music could be absolute shit, but if you have the money to push it onto a bunch of playlists. like Or you're signed to a label. Yeah, like you... Know? you that does that. Uh, that just like ticks me off. And I hate how it just like defines your success. It's I not mean, even about your music anymore. It's just like, do you have the funds to make it popular? I mean, but if you think back on what I was talking about earlier with like the record sales yeah. and all that, it's the same thing, just in a different it, format. Exactly, exactly. Which is, it's how it's always been. Like the people with the most money are going to be able to have the resources and have this the privilege. Music business emphasis on business. Yeah. People who have the privilege to get their stuff out there, you know? Do you remember when Spotify launched Discovery Mode? It was like last year or the year before. Yes. It's basically like a pay-to-play scheme, pressuring vulnerable artists and smaller labels to accept lower royalties in exchange for a boost in the company's algorithms. So... (laughs) Criminal. You're joking. (laughs) No. (laughs) Also, (laughs) Spotify royalties are shit well yeah that's criminal anyway so the fact that they're getting less than like one sixth of a penny yeah is what why yeah so the press release announcing this seemed almost designed to be confusing for the artists um and hide what was really going on in this press release quote says this might sound complicated and it is (laughs) no yeah could Um, you imagine hearing that in one of the classes or any of the classes that you took I know. (laughs) Like in your entire life. Yeah. "Hmm." Rather than simply describe the trade-off in straightforward terms, aka the artists accept a lower royalty rate for the platform to recommend their music to more listeners, the press release buries the truth beneath vague statements giving, quote, artists a say in how their music is discovered. But no. 
But no, I know it's really messed up. And I feel like a a lot of people talk about it. I know there has been actually in the past like years. And honestly, I think Taylor Swift has been like a huge person in this whole like music streaming, kind of bringing it to light. Like even people Mm -hmm. who are not musicians kind of are more aware of what musicians have to deal with with these streaming companies. Yes, I agree. But I feel like this was like just kind of buried in the news. And obviously I think also because it was like kind of mid pandemic and like Mm -hmm. the world was slash is falling apart. There were so so many other things happening. Yeah. I feel like it kind of got buried within all these other things and people were like, yeah, new music or whatever the fuck. Like, yeah. And honestly, that was probably planned as well. I'm sure it was released this in the most chaotic and complicated time and then just tell everyone it's complicated as well. Yeah. So they'll just be even more desensitized to like wanting to get into it because they're so overwhelmed by everything else. Yeah, it basically targets like busy artists who are kind of like needing to get onto these playlists to continue their career. All of these Spotify playlists, like Apple Music playlists, whatever, they have so many listeners like an unreal amount of listeners like millions millions that can change an artist's life like if they're placed on one of those playlists well yeah that's i mean that's what gives them publicity that's what makes people want to give them record deals and tours and all this other stuff but this like this like technically isn't illegal because of this loophole almost in like the payola law oh my goodness And especially because although it was like vague and kind of buried, Spotify did kind of tell you like what the deal was when you do this. Yeah. So because they were... Because they're like, here's what you got to do to get this. Right. They're like, be aware that you're going to lose money, Yeah. but you'll get more publicity. Right. Because they aired their dirty laundry, they can get away with the... uh, Yeah. I hate that. So that's payola. (laughs) Incredible. I hope that I did good i did it justice (laughs) i think you did well and it's such a serious just with the way that the music industry is kind of i don't want to say like solidifying itself but in recent years especially with the rise of streaming platforms the music industry is like comfortably okay with exploiting oh of course artists and creatives of course. And it's it's just about mass media and consumption. And mm-hmm. it's less about, you know, the well-being, the morality, and, like, the intention. Right. And I know a lot of artists, like us included, are feeling that pressure and, like... Yeah, it honestly makes me, like, feel really pessimistic. I'm already kind of a pessimist. It's draining. In case you can tell, it's just draining to think about, even. I think this also... There's a lot of people nowadays that prefer to stay independent. Like, obviously, there are pros and cons to both because record labels have, they have the funds, they have the resources, they have the connections, you know, mm-hmm. but they also take a lot of your money. They also have a lot of control of your artistry, especially if you're small and they, they just find you somehow or whatever. It's kind of like a double-edged sword. No matter which you pick, there's going to be a lot of like hardships to go through and that's I think what's so frustrating and all of these like corporate people in the music industry are so unwilling to kind of like adapt to the new way of thinking the new resources that people now have instead they're trying to like capitalize on them Mm -hmm. like TikTok it's been really good for like independent artists who like can get their music out there like organically which obviously has happened you know like we've we've all seen it Mm -hmm. but Again, then you have the record labels who are like, you must go viral on TikTok for us to work with you. Right. Or like, how many how many followers do you have? 
yeah. It's, no. <laughs> it's insane. It's insane. And, you know, at this point, it just... When the artists aren't getting paid as much as literally everybody else on the corporate side... Mm-hmm. When Not this even is a little an bit. artist industry, there's something wrong. Of course. I do agree with your point that you made earlier when I was talking about the beginning of Pela, like how many artists like would we know about? I still am now thinking about that in like today's terms. Like how many artists do I scroll by like on TikTok? Sorry, I'm talking so much about TikTok. It's just like so prevalent in the music industry right, right now. now. Like it's I feel really like ridiculous. It's, I follow a lot of quote unquote like smaller artists on TikTok who are amazing and mm-hmm. they they don't go viral, you know? It's just because of like the I don't I don't know, you know? So, you got to play into the algorithm. Yeah, it's just like doing that shit makes and me it's want crushing. to die. So, so yeah, so yeah, that was mine, and amazing. Um, yeah. I think that is very useful information. A lot of people need to understand, and now I think it's important. Alrighty, well, I'll get into mine now. I'm also very excited. It's one of those stories yeah. where I had no idea. I had absolutely no idea, and I feel like so many great legends are remembered for you know their time of shining, of course, and then they're forgotten completely. Mm-hmm. Um. But like we said at the beginning, Paola was kind of from my last episode topic that came up. And this one I found is direct relation to what you were talking about last week. So last week, Lissa covered the murder case and trial of Lana Clarkson, who mm-hmm. was killed by producer Phil Spector. Among one of the people mentioned in association with Spector was Jim Gordon. Yeah who was considered to be a rock and roll legend for his drumming and session playing in the 1960s and 70s. Was he in the Wrecking Crew? He was. Yeah. See, I don't know anything about this. Yeah, well, and the thing that was, and we'll, we'll get into this, but he was so young when he joined the Wrecking Crew. Yeah. And he was there because, was it Hal Blaine? Mm-hmm. Who was the drummer in L.A., like yeah. for all those sessions. Oh, yeah. He saw Gordon like up and coming when mm-hmm. he was on tour with this English group and was like, oh, I have way too many gigs and this guy could cover for me. So that's how I became part of the Wrecking Crew. But I named my document mm-hmm. the Get Wrecked Crew because of this story. Amazing. So yeah, so he I'm was so <laughs> he was a rock and roll legend because of his session playing and his tour playing, 60s and 70s, all the way up to the 80s kind of when things took a turn for the worse. It was expected, but unexpected in the way that it went down. So my story is kind of going around this question. How do you think one joins a prison band? A what? A prison band? A prison band. Like, (gasps) did you know that there are bands in prison? I didn't, but that's kind of (laughs) dope. Like, um, that's... Sounds fun. Um, So here's the story. I'm going to start from the beginning. Please do. Alrighty. So Jim Gordon, or officially James Bett Gordon, was born in the San Fernando Valley of Los Angeles. His mother was a nurse and his father was an accountant. Uh, This place in Los Angeles, you know, blonde hair, curly boy like Jim grew up saying please and thank you, shining his dad's shoes with his brother. Very 50s America. Mm Mm-hmm. He made his first set of drums out of garbage cans, and his parents bought him a real set soon after that. Yeah, they were like, enough with the garbage slamming. (laughs) They were like, I've had enough. (laughs) But they let him have the trash, literally trash can drums for a long 
not a long time, but they didn't see him banging on trash cans. They're like, we should get him a drum set. They definitely let him bang on trash cans for a while. Can you imagine the metal clanging that came out of that? I know. I think it's so funny to me, though. Well, sorry to interrupt, but you know that that guy that um, in Boston, I don't have his name on the top of my head, but he would always sit in Quincy Market. If you've ever been to Quincy yes. Market in Boston, you He's know insane. who this man is. He's he, the bucket drummer. The bucket drummer. He uses those two plastic, like, paint what are they paint buckets yeah like they're the like big the white home depot yeah. orange and like the lowe's buckets yeah he would drum the most insane shit on those things and would make it sound crazy and you can hear it echoing like throughout almost the entire it's almost the sound of quincy market no it really actually. is like i think so too like there's like a few like regular like street performers there and he's kind of like in my opinion, one he's of the, the most president. iconic. Like, he is iconic. He's the president of that street performing club, for we sure. We need to find his name at some point. I love him. He he was dope. Like, I gave him a lot of money in my years in Boston. Yeah. Well, <laughs> if anything, I would have loved to have seen Jim Gordon banging on some buckets look at, in oh, his look prime. At yeah. Just to, like, show you how crazy good drummers are you put like them on buckets and you're like shit i walked by someone like that on the street it's and crazy. he's not famous yeah not to not anything against drummers but lol lol so it's no surprise but his father was an alcoholic classic so his mom became the glue of the family gordon allegedly clung to eating for comfort and had insecurities from being a bit overweight Mixed with the family climate at home, he stated that the voices in his head would be there to guide and comfort him. So in his childhood, he... And this is all from, like, an interview later, as we'll see, but he started hearing voices. Oh. So, yeah, alcoholic dad, and he was, you know, eating for food. His mom was, like, stressed out, and he found comfort in, you know, these voices in his head. His father successfully made it through A&A. Oh. And became more involved within his life during his teen years. Yeah. Like, I think... That's good. Good for he, him. He was there, like, coaching, like, Little League Baseball with him, like, him and his brother. Like, yeah. Did you say A&A? A A. Sorry, did I? Yeah, I did say A&A, yeah. didn't I? It definitely <laughs> I says you meant. A-A here. I knew what you meant. <laughs> I was like, yeah? Gordon says that he had great parents. Okay. He's like, his parents were really good to him, and he had, like, the best parents that he could have, which is... In, Important to remember when things go down. At 17, with the help of a fake ID, he joined the Everly Brothers Tour in England. He passed up a music scholarship to UCLA to begin this tour and his professional career. His ever-growing popularity and confidence in his music and his life, he kind of grew out of his like chunky overeating stage and was said to be very muscular and handsome. Um, So that confidence, his new appearance, his music playing made the voices in his head recede for a few years. So he didn't need to find comfort in them anymore. But during interviews in his early years and through those that knew him, he was portrayed as a clean cut All-American type. Frank Zappa would later call him Skippy, like the peanut butter because he was such an all-American boy. He was more than just the -the run-of-the-mill drummer. He had a lot of talent and was kind and gentle, according to those that were on tour with him. Earliers, again. Mm -hmm. Um, By the time the English tour ended with the Everly Brothers, he was getting a lot of gig opportunities to be a session player in LA as a part of the Wrecking Crew, which we talked about. Right. 
And his involvement in the Wrecking Crew would lead him to work with Barbara Streisand, John Lennon, George Harrison, Taj Mahal, Phil Spector, Jackson Brown, Dr. John, Carol King, the Beach Boys, Delaney and Bonnie, Joe Crocker, Leon Russell, Johnny Rivers, um, Harry Nelson, Gordon Lightfoot, B.B. King, Randy Newman, um, The Carpenters, Steely Dan, Traffic, Frank Zappa, and Tina Turner's River Deep Mountain High, which I know we talked about last week because it's just amazing. God, it's so good. He was known as a solidly reliable professional, and he got paid as much as triple the usual scale paid to session musicians. Damn. He was young, making bank. He was very busy. Yeah. But so in... 1960, so between 1963 and now I'm at 1969. In 1969 and 1970, Gordon toured as a part of the backing band for Delaney and Bonnie, and that band included Eric Clapton. Clapton took over the group's rhythm section, so Gordon on drums, Carl Rattle was the bassist, and Bobby Whitlock was like a keyboardist, singer, songwriter. And they formed a new band called Derek and the Dominoes. This band would later split in 1971, but they had short-lived. So it's like 1970, 1971, Derek and the Dominoes was like Eric Clapton with Jim Gordon. That was the band. Okay. Gordon, along with other members of the Dominoes, minus Clapton, would tour with Joe Crocker on his Mad Dogs and Englishmen tour in 1971. So after, you know, the band kind of... I don't think they broke up at this point, but they were definitely slowing down. Without Clapton, the rest of the band members, including Jim Gordon, like went on this tour. It was on this tour, next to Woodstock, probably, that would forever fuse sex, drugs, and rock and roll in Gordon's life, as well as the like the world of music at the time. Like, oh yeah, drugs like speedballing, which is oh. mixing heroin and cocaine. So insane. That is just the craziest. Anytime I hear that what a speedball is like when i first found out what that meant i was like i'm sorry what people then die well (laughs) yes they did but like how do you not how do you do that consistently yes oh my god yes like i feel like that is just a death you know that's a death sentence like one and done i could never mom if you're watching this i could never yeah don't worry moms don't worry mom Um, we're scared (laughs) but drugs like speedballing became a frequent cop-out for his strange behavior that started to come about. Mm -hmm. Which wasn't strange behavior, but in fact, been the unchecked and undiagnosed schizophrenia that he had been battling with his entire life. So his psychiatric condition went undiagnosed for a very long time, but was not ignored. Within the various circles of people that surrounded him, it was clear to them that despite, you know, playing brilliantly on stage... He was becoming a social nightmare and unhinged. The word unhinged was very frequently used. Because even just upsetting. without a history of like intense mental illness, mixing cocaine and heroin Literally together. just the climate of rock and roll in the 70s. Alarming. And I can imagine you're also drinking on that. You probably have no sleep. So what are you eating? Substance, probably like nothing. weird bread and like snacks. I don't know. Like, like nothing. You're like, just doing drugs. Like, this like, only thing keeping you awake yeah. for, you know, days on end, depending on your tour schedule. Like, like it was you insane. would be unhinged just, like, if you were the most, like, stable person in the universe. I'm unhinged when I get any less than six hours of sleep. Yeah. But while touring with him in 1970, legendary Eagles songwriter J.D. Souther said, We knew he was a mess 
but nobody knew what kind of a mess. Frankly, he had so many chemicals running around in his body that it was impossible to tell which gym you were going to get at any given moment. Oh my God, that's so scary. He had many erratic and violent breakouts. One while on tour with Cocker, Gordon beat his then girlfriend, singer Rita Coolidge, in a hotel. He punched her in the face, I believe. Oh my God. Yeah, like there was an altercation, like very publicly punched her in the face (gasps) of like a hotel hallway. Oh my God. Yeah. And I'll get into her So he's going off the rails. Yeah. So he's now, he's doing all these drugs. He's acting crazy when he's not on, he's able to keep it together on stage. Like drumming centers him. Sure. But when he's off, yeah, he's... You know, he's partaking in all this like crazy behind the scenes stuff. He's having erratic and violent behavior. Now he's taking it out on girlfriends and other people around him. There was also a letter his father wrote in 1969 urging him to get psychiatric help. So his family like was aware of his state. Yeah. And they were corresponding to him while he was traveling around. So his family already, what I assume must have had some knowledge of this before he became big. And I wonder if he ever told them like, you know, in his childhood or if they ever talked about it. I mean, um, I'm sure as a kid, like, if you're hearing voices and stuff. Yeah, because like, his mom was present. His mom they, was yeah. taking care of him and his brother. So I wonder if she knew. I don't want to say I'm sure she did, but, like, I'm right? sure she did. Like, so, or at least had, like, an inkling, like, something's something's off here. Right. Ugh, tragic. Yeah. Um, but in 1977, from 70, 71-ish, where he was with Derek and the Dominoes, mm-hmm. all the way to 1977... In 1977, Gordon had more than a dozen hospital stays just in that year. Oh my God. He would check himself in for treatment only to abort the stay before he stabilized. Oh, like, so he started, he would start going through withdrawals and then be like, never mind. Yeah. Or he would like, you know, want to take care of it. Yeah. And then would get back out just being like, I don't need help or whatever. That's Um, so heartbreaking. It is also said that the doctors misdiagnosed and treated him for alcoholism, not acute schizophrenia. Or just even drug addiction. Like, Yeah. They're like, oh man, he is fucked up. Must be the alcohol. And no. That's so heartbreaking. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's really sad. Mm-hmm. And it is said that the tipping point for Gordon was like in 1979 when his work had dwindled to almost nothing. And he, had, he accepted a gig with Paul Anka in Las Vegas. After a few bars of the opening song, Gordon walked off the stage unable to play. Described by a psychiatrist... Oh, yeah. The voices in his head would deny him food, cause his body intense amount of pain, deny him sleep or let him relax at all. And they would control his hands, making it nearly impossible to drum. So these voices were self-absorbing. The fact that this was undiagnosed and they were trying to treat him for alcoholism when this shit started happening to him is mind-blowing oh my god this is terrible yeah but ironically before any of this shit really goes downhill downhill as if it hasn't gone downhill enough Mm -hmm. he regained the ability to play exceptionally um like as he did before Mm -hmm. post 1979 and created a band called the i5 and they were on their way to a record deal things were going good but in 1983, specifically on the afternoon of June 1983, Gordon drove five miles from his Van Nuys condominium to his mother's small North of Hollywood apartment. When he got there, she wasn't there. 
So he went home and he waited. And then at about 1130 that night, he returned. A light on was inside. And when he knocked on the door, it is said that he could hear his mother, Osa Marie Gordon, shuffling across the floor in her slippers. So she's like getting ready to go to bed. This is your mom. Getting ready to go to bed. I'm scared. Gordon attacked his 72-year-old mother. (gasps) He first pounded her head with a hammer four (gasps) times. And when she failed to lose consciousness, he plunged a butcher knife into her ribs three times to end her suffering, is what he told police. Oh, my God. And this butcher knife was like one of those eight-inch knives (gasps) from the kitchen. Mm. So he was... The state that he was in at this moment. Oh, my God. Yes. That's um, scary. That, oh, my God. Gordon had no conscious recollections of his actions, is what he claims. He described them as, like, being in a dream. When police went to see Gordon at the crime scene, they heard him crying. <gasps> and according to police reports, he feared that the same person who had killed his mother might have come for him as well. And in the police car, he was crying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, but she's tortured me for years. So he's saying this, like, there's admittance of guilt, but he's also like, doesn't really know what has happened, is afraid that someone else is coming after him. Like, he is so out of there. Wait, who called the police? Like, him? Unsure. Oh, you don't know. But he was there when police, like, police showed up. Maybe it was like a neighbor. Or Probably. Probably I would that. assume. Oh my yeah. God. Um, police showed up and he was inconsolable. The events leading up to this specific day are unclear other than the fact that his mother was planning on moving away from the Los Angeles area to stay with family in Portland, Oregon. I also do not know where his brother and his father were at this I time. I was just going to ask I'm not that. sure if his father passed away. Like, Any obituary on this family is so minimal. It's very upsetting. Yeah. But I don't know if like his mom was just living alone. Right. I assume. It kind of sounds like if it. his father was home when he did this to his mother, um, yeah, I don't think it would have happened. But again, unsure. Very unsure. Or like he would have gotten attacked too. Possibly. I think? Possibly. The fact that she was going to move away, Ida, like, it was unsure if that was another tipping point. Yeah. Like, his mother leaving him. Like, it just kind of tipped him over the edge. Yeah, possibly. Um, But I want to go into detail about his mother, Osa Marie Gordon, and who she was. Okay. In these cases, it just sucks to me because, you know, the people that are, like, unfortunately victims, they fall victim to someone who... Like, within the industry, it's just, you know, made leaps and bounds for the progression of music. But it's eclipsed, like, the life and the importance of the life of their victim and, you know, the life that they had. And I'll say that I hate that several of her obituaries online were just filled with information about how she died and the fact that her son was a rock and roll legend who had won Grammys and... Like, this isn't his obituary. No, that's so tabloidy. And she isn't defined by the way that she died. That's so... It's unfortunately so common, though. Yeah. Like, and I, I like, think the narrative ugh. is changing, like, on, in I that I think aspect. so, too. And it was upsetting. I, You know, it could be assumed that because this murder was so high profile because of Jim Gordon's fame status mm-hmm. that, you know, the family preferred not to put too much personal information out like into the public, which is 
like when I was trying to find, you know, any like sort of biography on her. Exactly. Yeah. Um, any sort of biography or who she's like succeeded by. I like couldn't find that. And I imagine that they might want to have like to have just kept that private. And I would respect yeah. that. Yeah. Um, but what we do know of her is Osa Gordon was born on December 7th, 1911 in Kansas. She was an obstetric nurse or an OBGYN is oh. what we now call it now. Um, so important, especially because she was alive in the post Roe v. Wade world, which happened in 1973 because she died in 1983. So she was an OBGYN nurse when this movement for women was happening, which is so important. And if that itself, you know, doesn't say anything else for her personality, like speaks for itself. She also worked in a maternity ward in Jim's early years. So delivering babies or just helping pregnant moms, like who cares? That's amazing work. Yeah. She was the mother of Jim and another son, John. So John was, um, Jim's brother Mm -hmm. and like I said before I'm not sure where his father was at the time or if he's still alive Mm -hmm. um she was a woman who was raising two boys who had an alcoholic father like basically probably by herself for those years that Mm -hmm. he was dealing with alcoholism yeah Yeah. she kept it together and raised the boys well enough for one of them to go off and become this famous drummer and supported him behind the scenes had correspondence when they were concerned about his psychiatric health like she seemed to be a very caring and active mother Mm -hmm. without borderline being like momager yeah i just think it speaks a lot about her character and who she was and just the fact that the way this ended to be by her own son that's why i said it was you know the turn of events was expected but unexpected because you know with the drugs and the with undiagnosed condition having it take a turn for the worse is expected but taking a turn to where you're killing your own mother is the most unexpected and insane thing about this and especially the type of person that she was and When Gordon speaks of the events that played out that night, he often refers to it as, quote unquote, my crime. So not that he committed the crime, but the crime happened as he was Mm -hmm. only obeying the voices in his head. Rita Coolidge, who I mentioned before. Oh, the girlfriend. The girlfriend. So she dated him for a while during his days with Clapton. She states, in hindsight, looking back... I knew he was doing blow. He was just over the edge because if you're doing excessive amounts of drugs and you have already a predisposition or active mental illness, it can be exasperated by the drugs and alcohol. So I just figured that's what had happened. It never occurred to me that he had been violent with me for absolutely no reason, Mm -hmm. but I didn't know anything about the voices. I don't know if he was hearing voices then. I imagine he probably was. Probably a voice told him to take me out in the hall and punch me out. I never went near him again. I didn't want to deal with him on any level because I was afraid of him. Even her, like, he's not telling other people about these voices. Yeah. They are in his mind acting and causing him to react in the ways that he was. So during his trial, psychiatrists said that the voices Gordon experienced came in many forms, some benign, some benevolent, but the most powerful of them all was the voice of his mother. <gasps> yes. When her voice would roar in Gordon's ears, whether from across town or across the country, it sought to destroy him. This is the same voice that would starve him, 
keep him from sleeping and playing the drums and filling his body with pain. So in his brain, that truly, there were three voices. The peak most evil voice was that of his mom. Oh my God. Yes. And so this is where I got a little upset. Yeah. Well, this is where I got upset that I couldn't find any more information about like his relationship with his mom during his childhood because she was the one picking up the pieces because the alcohol like alcoholic father was absent oh my god so (sighs) she was caring was she hard on him in a way that he processed it in the most crazy way like you know i i need to know more evidence yeah like why was that like why did this voice get created this way because from everything else that we know she is the most caring person of all time yeah she's like it doesn't sound like, at least from what we know, like mm-hmm. and that she states, would like starve. Remember how I said yeah, earlier, he said, he said, I have great parents. Like I had great parents. Do so, you think the mom knew that it was her I voice? truly don't think so. But his oh lawyer. God, that's so fucked. Yeah, no. So his lawyer argued in court, like one of the big arguments was that Gordon and his paranoia believed that his mother's departure like she was planning on leaving yeah would enhance her control over him so he truly believed that he was acting in self-defense he perceived the voices to be life-threatening and they moved at a lightning speed and from jim's point of view his mother's departure deprived him of the ability to like defend himself from her so it's like in a really ironic twisted way like the further she was, like, the voice would have more power. Just, you know, this voice and the fact that his mom was going away. He was I like, can't believe that. that if she's going like, away, I can't defend myself. And that is something, like, he's been fighting this for so long. He, like, needed that control. Like, he needed that chance to defend himself, I guess. That's such a horror so, movie thing. Like, Yeah, the so they say he was acting in self-defense. Oh, my God. But again, self-defense of a voice, yeah. not the actual person. And wow. he killed an actual person. Probably at that point, you can distinguish between like the real person and the voice. And he said that like after he did that, the voices went away. (gasps) Like for good? He said, yeah, like kind of. He said he doesn't really have them anymore. And (laughs) just the fact that that was just right. Yeah, like relying on his mother's existence. He is like, uh, like a personification of this actual person who may or not be anything like, you know, what's in his mind. So again, crazy, but um, his defense attempted to plead not guilty due to reasons of insanity. Yeah. However, (gasps) even though he was clearly responding to these audio hallucinations, he knew, according to the court, that it was still wrong to kill. He had made some statements right after the crime admitting that it was wrong to kill. So the court found that he wasn't acting in a blind or incoherent state. To clarify... The insanity defense doesn't protect all individuals with mental illness um, conditions if they are still able to detect right from wrong. Right. The insanity defense, that's usually just like, were they able to understand like their actions and what they were actually doing? Can you understand? Like the repercussions of this action even. Yes. Like everything about the action. Can you understand right from wrong? Right. And back in the day when, you know women on their periods were just deemed hysterical, Mm -hmm. complete insanity, and that would be fine. But it's changed drastically. And I don't know if it was the same year that the crime happened or a few years before, but the insanity defense changed in California to reflect these new requirements. So it wasn't, you know, it was a very 
to kind of be a little more like not strict, but I guess that's kind of the first. Well, kind of, yeah, like Like kind kind of a bit. You have more specific. Mental illness is just more common and accepted, so you can still know right from wrong and be depressed. Right, you're not killing people because of like in the name of depression. Right. It's just something that you're also dealing with at the same time, which, you know, probably doesn't help, but it also isn't a defining factor. I don't know if this is super relevant, but, like, was he, like, on all those drugs and stuff, like, when he killed his mother? Like, speedballing? Yeah. Most likely. I think that became just, like, a very frequent part of his life and why things were just, like, very crazy. That on top of, you know, not being able to eat or sleep because of the voices telling him to do so. So on July 10th, 1984, a little over the year since the murder, he was sentenced to 16 years to life in prison for the second degree murder of his mother. And like I said, was denied the use of the insanity defense. It was only here in court that he was officially diagnosed with acute schizophrenia. What? It took them all the way until this court case when psychiatrists and other people had to come in to testify to for like him. To evaluate that him. That they were like, oh, maybe we should officially diagnose him. Remember, this person had so many hospital stays and yeah. so many encounters with medical officials and none of them were like, he needs a proper psychiatric evaluation and diagnosis. Yeah. Well, even today, like men with mental illnesses or dealing with any sort of trauma or anything like that are not they're not really like taken as seriously Seriously, or idly they're not like really itching to like speak out about it you know maybe he just like I'm sure back then it was even worse like I'm maybe he didn't even talk about the voices like in those hospital stays like you know like they probably just saw this rocker mm-hmm. like i'm sure they had a bunch of other like rock stars coming in yeah with all, all drugs of drugs and yeah. alcohol and you know acting unhinged but they're just right. like it's the rock and roll lifestyle really nothing else above that i mean that's the only way i can see how this has gone this so has, it's unchecked gone, yeah yeah absolutely because that's just that's so next level like that mm-hmm. i can't imagine how scared he must have been yeah or just like not understanding or he he was tormented by these voices clearly yeah and like oh my god i can't even i know i know i I did not even know a lick of this like this is yeah and when i like so upsetting so many of well some of the sources but like so many like sites they'll just be like amazing rock and roll legends and their downfall yeah and they it's like a paragraph about all the great stuff he did. And then it's like drops a bomb in one sentence. They're like, oh, and then 1983, he killed his mother. Oh my God. The end. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, that's, there's what more else? to this. Yeah. And this is what it is. Like the reality is that it's always, there's crazy layers and a bunch of stuff, you know, under the veil of sex, drugs and rock and roll. Yeah. People are dealing with and then don't, it doesn't help when they get mixed up in that culture and that community. Yeah. And then takes a turn for the worse. I think we should make it clear that we're not, like, saying that what he did to his mother is understandable, like, obvious, or, like, okay. Absolutely not. Like, yeah, not, like, no. I'm not defending we're, we're his not try- yeah, actions. Yeah. I'm just... Explaining the reasoning. There's yes. Like, yeah. Like, yes. kind of, there's more to it to than just, Absolutely. Like, and crazy. that's why, well, and I also said before, like, that's why it's, like, so disheartening to see that she there's not a lot of info there's not a lot her. of info on her and yeah. just how this went down and it's all covered by this his cra- legacy yeah whatever. this legacy yeah. And this crazy situation that came out of the blue yeah but also not 
yeah. at the same time. And she is just, she is the victim, like, entangled. Of a brutal, brutal, brutal attack. That is just so... Yeah, but I'm so like many... I'm going to be thinking yeah. about this for so long I because I... That is just... Right. But it was... This case also is just, like, it's important because he was dealing with things that no one had, like, any idea about. Like, yeah, we knew about the drugs and we knew about the alcohol. And we knew he went to the hospital. I'm sure there was a lot of, like, oh, we're turning a blind eye to this kind of thing. Because he's really talented or whatever. But then, like, you know, it started showing on stage. He couldn't play. He walked off. Like, he wasn't showing up. He basically... Like for a few years went MIA mm-hmm. out of the scene. And yeah. then this happens and they're like, whoa, like what happened to him? What's been happening? Oh my God. Um, but when in prison, officials said that he maybe had around six visitors over the course of 11 years. Otherwise, he hadn't heard from anyone else or corresponded with anyone outside of his attorney and business manager. Wow. Gordon states, when the crime happened, they all just turned their backs on me. I don't blame them to tell you the truth whatever was taking me down that road i was on a path of self-destruction and it was nothing that any reputable studio musician or artist would want to be connected with because it was kind of a hopeless situation so he says this and he's right and this is this is also at the time where he's like i don't hear voices anymore yeah, I like yeah. I like briefly wrote it down like in my notes, but one of the big sources I drew was like an interview with like the Washington Post. Oh, okay. When they were asking him about what had happened, because they they interviewed him in like like a year or so after it went down. So like, like when early. he was all already in jail, like he yeah, was charged. he was very again. How long re- do you know refers, how long his sentence is? Did he get life or? He got sixteen to life, but he was transferred into a psychiatric facility. Oh, yeah. Okay. So he was not in actual prison. They until they even today, like yeah. So I'll get I'll get into okay, that. Yeah, sorry, um, sorry. I'm no, no, no. You're good. You. You're good. That was when they were saying that he when he describes this crime, he's so far removed from it because it, it was a dream to him. Yeah, he's still so disconnected from the fact that it happened and doesn't believe that it really happened. So his demeanor was very off putting. Oh yeah, kind of just like. They said he was like, had a big smile. Like calm and collected. Calm kind of and thing. collected. Oh it was just like, I don't hear the voices anymore. That's yeah, so I killed spooky. my mom. Isn't that crazy? Oh my I God. know. So it takes the toll, but he's, that's him being a bit more level headed and it's still very alarming. Yeah. Um, oh my God. <laughs> yeah. But he knew. He was like, it was a hopeless situation. Like, it makes yeah. sense why people turn their backs on me. Like, he can say that, but then he's also like smiling. So some fun things that happened during prison. Oh, God. Fun and the not fun sense of the term. But in 1992, Gordon shared the Grammy for best rock song for Clapton's re-recording of Layla from the Unplugged album. Oh, my God. So from Derek and the Dominoes back in the, like, 70, yeah. 1970, they did a revamped version of that album. And in 1992, like, the single Layla got a Grammy. Oh, my God. And because Gordon helped write that song, he, was in- he got a Grammy when he was in prison. Oh. He was formally invited <gasps> to the Grammy ceremony. Prison officials say it is highly unlikely that he would have been released, even if he petitioned for it. Yeah. Um, so he didn't go, but it looks like you can still win Grammys in prison and possibly get invited to go if you're lucky. <gasps> that is... <laughs> Oh my god. Yes. And what? he still earns royalties while being in prison. Oh my god. I, I like 
I could look into this a bit more probably. But his manager declines to say how much Gordon made from the royalties of the Layla re-release. So a lot. But but this manager conceded that the former drummer's profit would fall into the six figures. (gasps) He also receives royalties from co-writing he did with the group Traffic, as well as the Apple Jam segment of George Harrison's landmark All Things Must Pass album. And he stood to receive royalties from a Derek and the Dominoes live album. So he's still receiving money while he's in jail. Like it's still going somewhere. Um, He was first eligible for parole in 1991. What? But parole has been denied several times as he never attended a parole hearing. Oh, he didn't even try. Nope. But he's never, it doesn't seem like he's ever taken like full accountability for it. Exactly. Well, in 2014, he declined to attend his hearing and was denied parole until at least 2018. So he's been fighting for parole like since 1991. And even in 2014, he didn't want to attend his parole hearing. Wait, so he's been fighting to get paroled, but then doesn't show up to yeah. his parole hearing? Like, he's available for parole, like, wants it, but isn't actually showing up. So does he want it? But like, at the He same, wouldn't get that unless he was, like, I feel truly remorseful about, like, and actually, like, proved yeah, that he well, would, could be integrated back into mm-hmm, society. And he was in, like, you know, a hospital at this point. Like, he's never... Oh, yeah, yeah. He's not he's an not actual in, like, prison. prison. He stays in this hospital. Los Angeles County Deputy District Attorney Alexis De La Garza, we've heard her name before, Mm -hmm. she told the parole panel that Gordon is medically and psychologically non-compliant. This is one of the saddest cases that we have in prison. We have an individual who is seriously psychologically incapacitated, and he is a danger when he is not taking his medication. He was notorious for not taking his medication. Well, I'm sorry. I... (laughs) I think a thing that happens with a lot of people with mental illness and take medication for it is Mm -hmm. like, as soon as you feel it start working, you convince yourself that you're better and you don't need to take it anymore. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But I think that's like a common thing. Like, Mm, absolutely. Absolutely. But that was like also one of the main reasons why he was denied. Because they knew he wouldn't be taken, he wouldn't be stable. Mm -hmm. And there were other, you know, accounts because they said that he was like a danger to himself and others. So stuff probably went on behind the scenes that they're not putting onto the public record. Like in the facility? Yeah. And they also said he wasn't, they account most of this like him not taking his medication is why he was a danger to himself and others. So to top it off. Jim Gordon plays drums in a prison band. Oh yeah, my God. I totally forgot about all of that because I literally am in shock of all of this. So I, I, you know, full circle, here we are. So this is how you play in a prison band. I want to know. You are Jim Gordon and you go to jail. (laughs) Wait, on the, wait, full circle on trash cans. No, I think he has actual, they have like actual setup. But wouldn't that be kind of fun? Yes, it would. If it went full circle and he was just banging on those little cans Mm -hmm. again. And like one of the last things he said in one of the interviews was, I'd still like to play with Eric. Eric Clapton. Eric Clapton is like, please don't say my name again. (laughs) Yeah, he's like, oh, good old Eric. I still want to play with him. Um, So he remains incarcerated at the California Medical Facility as of this year. I will say though, another good takeaway is... I just think this underlines like the progress that we've made with like back in the day having such an unhealthy stigma against mental illness yeah. and ignoring mental health in like issues in the day and in the industry. 
Um, artists are definitely more outspoken and open with their mental health journey nowadays. It's like on TikTok and other things. Um, which I think in the general sense helps keep crazy things like this from happening. I mean, there are still very specific cases where, you know, people, I mean, there always will be honestly always, but I mean, as other bandmates and individuals with friends, it's better to have knowledge of like what could happen and going on like behind the scenes. So you could be an active bystander. Yeah. When, and not just kind of turn a blind eye. Yeah. When you see, you know, people become unhinged and they're clinging on to substances like you as a friend can kind of check in. I also read, uh, I don't know how accurate this is, but I think we're like probably one of like the most sober generations. I agree. I know people obviously still deal with like addiction and substance Mm -hmm. abuse and all that. But like as a whole, we're so much more aware of like the toll that that can take on not only yourself, but everyone around you. We definitely have a different relationship with substance. Yeah. And and, like kind of more aware of the signs of substance abuse or addiction. I am like hopeful that our generation and generations in the future will kind of be more conscious of how far that can really like go and that's not to say like or anyone with like an addiction problem or substance abuse we're gonna go be like homicidal that's not at all what I'm trying to say but like it alters your mental state Mm -hmm. so severely and like changes your relationships with people and just like your brain it just like totally messes up your brain and I'm also hopeful because I think just by having this podcast and talking about this topic yeah the progress that's being made and the awareness that is (laughs) had and in this day and age, look out for your friends. Yeah, I think that's really important. That's like a good take. Look out for that's your like loved a, ones. Look like out a good for your friends. Like, yeah, I feel like supporter. if there was someone that had stepped in for him, things could have gone differently. You I think? think so. I think at least. But like, would he have accepted that? Because like also, his parents were like, mm-hmm. you said that they were trying to kind of get in there. But yeah. I don't at know. the same time, the medical profession had very little knowledge of yeah I think that's kind of like a newer even just like mental health knowledge like that's just like a newer thing that's being like kind of dove in deeper you know so again look out for your friends yeah yeah, yeah. (laughs) and that is my story (laughs) I know it was so crazy it's I feel like it's only getting more crazy but that was good. You like did a really good job. I went through a roller coaster Shocked. of emotions. I wish they like, could see your facial expressions. I went through a roller coaster. That was crazy. But yeah. So that wow. that was the story of Jim Gordon and Osa Marie Gordon, most oh importantly. God. Yeah. Oh my god. I know. Crazy. <laughs> Alrighty guys. Well Thanks for listening. Yes, thanks for listening. We really appreciate it. And um we love you dearly and go listen to you so much go like watch something like nice or like get some sunshine or something because that was like scary and depressing and i don't mean to laugh i just laugh when i'm uncomfortable um (laughs) um, but yeah all right we love you guys and we will see you on the next episode goodbye goodbye (laughs) you like what you hear feel free to leave us a review on apple podcasts rate and subscribe anywhere you listen to podcasts Tell us what you think on our Twitter or Instagram at Record Crimes Pod. Have a suggestion or something you want to hear on the podcast? Send us an email at recordcrimespod at gmail.com.